Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. Today, it is my great honor to bring Dr. Jeffrey Strawn to the podcast. Dr. Strawn is a professor of psychiatry, pediatrics, and clinical pharmacology at the University of Cincinnati and at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He is director of the University of Cincinnati Anxiety Disorders Research Program and the associate vice chair of research in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of Cincinnati. He earned his medical degree from the University of Cincinnati and then completed a general psychiatry residency training at the University of Cincinnati and a clinical fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. His research focuses on anxiety disorders and risk factors for these conditions, as well as on the pharmacologic treatment of these disorders. In his clinical practice, he works with youth with anxiety and related disorders and with their families and supervises residents and fellows. Dr. Strawn has authored more than 160 peer-reviewed publications and co-authored two textbooks on the treatment of children and adolescents and on contemporary psychotherapy. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and has received multiple awards for teaching, mentorship, and research. We are so fortunate today to have Dr. Strawn join us. Please join me in welcoming him. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad that our paths crossed. It was kind of interesting, and I appreciate your being so willing to chat. I attended a American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry psychopharmacology course and heard you speak, and I was like, this is such good information for pediatricians and other folks that see kids. And so I am so grateful that you took the time to do this. Happy to be here. Well, just kind of a brief background. How did you choose child psychiatry? So I I never thought that I would become a child psychiatrist. When I was in medical school, I was pretty convinced based on where I'd worked at a VA uh, with another psychiatric researcher that I would be an adult psychiatrist probably working at the VA. I don't think I like the diagnostic complexity and the ambiguity of working with kids. And obviously that changed when I rotated as a second year psychiatry resident on the Uh, I'm sorry, as a general psychiatry resident on the child and adolescent psychiatry service and just really fell in love with it. Um, And ultimately the diagnostic ambiguity and often the uncertainty, you know, were the things that I really enjoyed about it. Yeah, it's hard, hard to beat kids. And I think the other thing that's really nice on the kid side and in my thought would be hard on the VA side is it's on the up upside, you know, the upstream where you can make an impact and have good outcomes and not necessarily like dealing with a ton of problems to begin with. Right. Lots of hope. Yeah. It's a different part in the arc. 
So for those of us that are in pediatrics, you know, we see behavioral health stuff all the time. And I've seen different numbers, like a quarter to a half of the reasons why parents bring kids into our practices is for behavioral health concerns. And I mean, it could be temper tantrums and it could be suicidal concerns. So, I mean, it runs the the gamut. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended that we do screening. So we do lots of screening, developmental screening, autism screening. We're trying to look at emotional types of things like with the pediatric symptom checklist, just kind of a, I like to think of it as a behavioral health vital sign, you know, how are Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And then the PHQ and substance use and 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 there's a lot. Are are do you think we're covering our bases? I, I do. I mean, there's always the issue of potentially overscreening, but I think you know many of the measures that you described are you know relatively short. They can generally set you up for a false positive, which is what we want, of course, in a screening test. Uh, and generally, with those measures, it's pretty easy to then smoke out whether we're dealing with psychopathology versus adjustment or dealing with an external factor that's that's precipitating symptoms. Yeah, I think you touched on something. The, the screening, it, you have to be able to know what to do with the positives. Right. Right. So, I mean, I do think it opens up the conversation. And the other thing I think is that it normalizes that this is just, you know, yeah, some people worry. How worried are you? you know, that that's just part of what we do. And so that it's an okay place to share when things are really difficult. Absolutely. And, and I think too, it's not like when kids are having trouble that somebody says like, well, let's go to the therapist. I mean, they come to our offices and then we hope we can get them to your offices, but there's not enough of you to go around. So I hear that a lot. I I bet. I bet. So, you know, one of the things I think particularly in I I think sort of mild to moderate, you know, anxiety or depressed kids. One of the first things that we're taught is, you know, to consider therapy and and primarily cognitive behavioral therapy first. And I know sometimes kids come in and they're pretty distressed. I mean, when do you think it's appropriate to, you know, to do CBT versus CBT plus meds plus meds only? What would you, you know, kind of what's your thought on that? From, from my standpoint, really, when we're dealing with moderate anxiety, the evidence is pretty equal in terms of CBT or medication. There's some suggestion that improvement happens a little bit faster with medication versus CBT. But when I'm dealing with the severe anxiety, the large or extra large version, that's really the place where I tend to use both medicines and or rather medication and psychotherapy. And when you say more severe, so from a pediatric point of view, I mean, what you see as severe and what we see as severe may be different. I mean, we may think less severe is more severe, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So what sort of criteria do you use to sort out, like, other than just story, like how, you know, how significant is this? All right. So I'm, I'm looking at the frequency and the severity as well as the impairment. Um, so for me, when I'm dealing really with, with the moderate to severe anxiety, I'm looking for anxiety that's there five, six, seven days a week. When it's there, I'm looking for anxiety that's there more than an hour a day. Many of these children will describe when you ask how much of the day they spend worry, they'll say, well, 
as much time as I'm awake. So that's in terms of frequency of the anxiety, that's really what I'm looking for. In terms of severity and impairment, the questions that I'm really asking are, well, how much do you think this affects how things go with mom and dad? Or how does the anxiety affect things at school? And there, what I found most helpful is actually asking about specific situations. And so in these situations, I'll say, maybe with an adolescent, where do you like to eat? And when you go to eat, assuming it's not during the pandemic, who orders? Are you able to order from the menu or does mom and dad have to order? What happens when you go out with friends if you go to the movies? Are you able to order the popcorn or do you have to have one of your friends go out? Or can you go out? Are you able to raise your hand and ask a question in class? What happens if the teacher does call on you? So those types of things. Can you go to a sleepover if that's developmentally appropriate in terms of the age? So really those, those types of questions. Those are for, great. Yeah. I, I think about it. My, my daughter, we're from a family of warriors. So I think of my daughter. I mean, boy, that was spot on. She's still, I mean, she's an adult and she still hates to order pizza over the phone. But, you know, the spending the night, you know, I just remember she was so worried about, should she go over to a friend's house? Because she was worried that I would be sad that she would be going. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, it's like, no, go. Yes, yes. So (laughs) those those types of things kind of just really, you know, trying to to smoke out those situations. Yeah, those Uh, are great pointers. So if you had kids that had that kind of impairment, at even your first visit, are those kids that you might start talking with, you know, with the parents about medication? I, I would. And, and really that conversation is to open the door in terms of, you know, things that I'll often say are sometimes people have very strong feelings in terms of medicines. Uh, they're absolutely in favor or they're absolutely against. And certainly I know in setting those two extremes that most people are somewhere in between. And so that question then becomes one in terms of, you know, what is the point for you at which, you know, this is really a problem or you're comfortable doing more? Uh, and, and that line, I think, varies considerably from family to family. Oh, I think those are really good pointers. And and certainly you're spot on and some families are eager. I would say most people are a little bit reluctant. I mean, I don't think anybody wants their kids to have to be on medications, but I think if you're able to make a case for their symptoms are so severe, it's really getting in the way. Sometimes I don't think parents know quite the extent of the worry, but sometimes they see the meltdowns that happen? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like if you try and make them do stuff that they are scared? Certainly, certainly. So, you know, in those situations I'm asking, so, you know, when, when does he or she have those episodes? And oftentimes where we'll really see those are in kids with social anxiety disorder and in kids with separation anxiety disorder, when we're about to encounter some social situation or we're about to encounter either a separation-related event or some threat of separation. Mom or dad are going to the grocery store uh, and the child is maybe staying with their older sister for a couple of hours or mom and dad are going out on a date. And these are sometimes questions that you know I'll, I'll ask the parents as well, just to get a better sense of how much this is affecting the family. So what happens when you guys go out for a date? And sometimes mom and dad look at each other and say, well, we never go out alone. Um, (laughs) We wouldn't, we don't, we can't. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, which, yeah. Which certainly raises a flag or, you know, increases my concern uh, in terms of not only the functional impairment that we're seeing, but also the way in which that functional impairment has become normalized within the family. Yeah, mom and dad don't do anything separately. What about if there's an overlay of trauma? Because I think one of the most common things that we see in trauma are kids with anxiety and mm-hmm. maybe kids that act out because of their fear. What do you think about in terms of, I mean, does that change your thoughts on, you know, divorce can be traumatic and especially a messy divorce? It does. And I, I have two thoughts in terms of that. One, I think, is just recognizing the phenotype um, of the anxiety relative to the, the phenotype of the trauma reaction. The other thing that I think is, is helpful here is just knowing developmental trajectory, knowing when the anxiety disorders begin, knowing when ADHD typically emerges, knowing when mood disorders emerge. You know, in the same sense that, you know, if, if an eight-year-old were coming to the office with, you know, shortness of breath, congestive heart failure would not be the first thing on our differential. You know, whereas if that person was 70 and had a history of coronary artery disease, CHF may be a little higher on our our differential. Um, So similarly, when I'm seeing, you know, a eight-year-old, you know, complaining of, you know, withdrawal and tiredness and sadness and, and tearfulness, that's not necessarily the time when we expect the mood disorders and depression to emerge. So I'm actually spending a bit more time trying to understand when he or she actually becomes sad or despondent or withdrawn or demoralized. Is something going on at school? Is there bullying? Is there something else from a trauma standpoint that's driving those symptoms? Because it's a bit less likely for that to be a primary depressive disorder at that age. That's a really great framework to to consider. I like, and I think pediatricians are good at development. I mean, that's kind of what we're about, right? Intuitively, yeah. I, yeah. I think you do this. But I like the way you sort of overlay it on also mood development because we may not always be we're we're thinking physical, cognitive, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. But I like that emotional development that I think is is something to kind of keep in mind. I like that. So oftentimes, you know, pediatricians and other primary care providers are the primary, you know, prescribers. And I think, I guess some numbers I've seen, 75% of psychotropics are written by primary care for better, for worse. And I think that, you know, we often are, you know, not confused so much, but it can be a little overwhelming with all the choices. So I think especially when we're talking about anxiety and depression, the biggest group that we're probably going to be the most comfortable with are the SSRIs. And so I know that's your area of research and expertise. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about maybe, you know, a few of the medications that you feel like, you know, these are really something to get comfortable with. Yeah. So for me, I think in terms of the really the body of evidence that we currently have, I think the SSRIs for both anxiety disorders as well as for depressive disorders are probably associated with more evidence than say the SNRIs or the, what we sometimes call atypical antidepressants. So those would be things like the norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitors like bupropion, Wellbutrin, to use the proprietary name. So in terms of the SSRIs, I I think that there are three that probably have the most evidence associated with them. Uh, And those three would be fluoxetine, 
or Prozac. The second would actually be escitalopram or Lexapro. And uh, the third would be sertraline or Zoloft. And I, I think there are a number of reasons uh, perhaps why to use one versus the other. And certainly one can make the decision based on the availability of evidence. So for evidence in anxiety disorders, we certainly have more studies that have been done with sertraline, uh, whereas in depression, we have more studies that have been done with fluoxetine. And then some people will also consider FDA approval, although in many cases that actually just reflects the company or someone having submitted for FDA approval, which is often a, a fairly arduous process, as opposed to just the body and the strength of the evidence. I think those are, are great guidelines. And I would guess most people would be comfortable. I know there's a couple others that fall into that class, but it makes sense to me to get comfortable with a few choices mm -hmm. and that there are some differences in those three medications that you talked about. Can you, you know, maybe talk a little bit about why one or the other? I mean, what are some of the differences between those three that might make you choose one or the other? So uh, among those three, fluoxetine is actually going to have the longest half-lives, the longest duration of action. Now, that can be a great thing in situations where you may have issues with adherence or where you may have more partial adherence, maybe missing a dose or two a week. Again, if missing more than that is still going to cause some problems from a pharmacokinetic standpoint. The downside to having a very long half-life medication is that if you do get into trouble in terms of side effects, you're going to be waiting some time for those symptoms to really resolve. Also, side effects may take a little bit longer to emerge uh, after starting the medicine. Fluoxetine is also going to have more drug-drug interactions, mostly in terms of that uh, cytochrome P452D6 inhibition. The other thing uh, with the other two medications, first looking at sertraline and then escitalopram, uh, is that they're a little bit more potent in terms of blocking serotonin reuptake relative to norepinephrine or dopamine reuptake. And they, that selectivity is probably something that's helpful, especially in anxiety disorders. Now, sertraline, I think, is you know, very good medicine supported by a lot of evidence. The main issue here is really one of ease of dosing. So with sertraline, I tend to start at a lower dose. Obviously, there's some variation there depending on other factors and the age of the patient and so forth. But looking at the clinical trials on average, and that on average term is really important, the dose that is going to get most folks better is going to be somewhere around 150 milligrams a day. So if we think about this based on the registration trials, if I'm titrating by say 50 milligrams, it's going to take some time to get there. Whereas with escitalopram, uh, I can often get to that 10 or 15 milligram per day dose a little bit faster. Now, even though I am talking about milligrams per day, we certainly know one size doesn't fit all. And there are some folks that respond at lower doses. Some folks actually respond at higher doses. And we know that there are a lot of factors that, that contribute to that variation in terms of how folks metabolize the medicines differently. Do you think that mantra of start low and go slow is, is you know, useful? 
I, I think to some extent it is. And fortunately, what I often see is, or probably used to see uh, in, in years past and seeing less of this now, which I think is a good thing, is that some folks will, you know, start sertraline 20 or 25 milligrams and just park. Uh, and six months later, we're still at 20 or 25 milligrams. And you know, at that point, we really haven't seen much improvement or we saw some initial improvement and then things waned. So I think it's, it's really a balancing act. I think start low and go slow can be helpful, but I do think we need to make sure that we are still titrating, albeit we need to make sure that we're not starting or titrating too quickly. What I think is actually really helpful here uh, is the, the way the registration trials for these medications were done. So when we look at, say, for example, escitalopram, uh, the studies were done starting at 10 milligrams, and this is in adolescents uh, age 12 to 17. And then at four weeks, if there wasn't sufficient improvement, it could increase to 20 milligrams. For sertraline, uh, the dosing in those trials was a little bit faster, um, but I think in general, starting at 25 milligrams and then increasing to 50 milligrams and then increasing from there is, is worthwhile. Another thing that's sometimes helpful, depending on the electronic medical record system that you're using for prescribing and so forth, uh, is to actually use the, the ramp dosage function, or in the old days of writing a prescription, the equivalent would be sertraline. 25 milligrams, Cigna, one tablet each morning for a week or 10 days, and then increase to two tablets uh, daily. And that way we, we can ensure that the patient is getting perhaps some titration before they're even coming back to the office to see us and helping to avoid them being parked at that very low dose for an unnecessarily long time. That's a, that's a great pearl about the electronic record to use that function. I don't think I've done that. I think I have, you know, written it one way, sort of where I want to go and then just mm -hmm. write something out for the patient. Like, okay, I'm giving right, you right. enough pills to do this. So here's right, my right. directions. But I think it's better if it's on the bottle, yeah. what, you're, what you're really wanting them to do. Just as far as following, you know, we're busy pediatrician, we're trying to, you know, behavioral health stuff sometimes takes a long time. What kind of intervals should we be seeing these patients at? I mean, I, I guess I would say typically I would maybe see them back in four to six weeks for the first after, I mean, what, what would you recommend? So it's, it's interesting because the, the recommendation doesn't necessarily follow the evidence. And there's, there has been a recommendation to uh, reevaluate in a week, but that doesn't seem to necessarily be based on evidence, what I'm referring. So what I will generally do, and this is certainly something that's become a little bit easier in the electronic medical record era, is if the patient portal has a messaging option or something along those lines, I'll actually say, shoot me a message in, in about a week, even if things are going better. And, and I think the way that we word that is actually really important. And one of the things that I always cringe uh, when I'm hearing our residents and fellows say this is, uh, give me a call if you have any problems. Because in that way, we've really set the patient up with an expectation that they will have problems or that problems are what they should be looking for, as opposed to the other way around. Give me a call just to check in and let me know how things are going. And then I like adding the comma, even if things are starting to be a little bit better. 
you know, to emphasize the fact that I still want them to call to call me. And oftentimes, you know, that's helpful because it's not an additional visit, but there's some contact and they may say no difference, which would be expected in many cases, or we had a little bit of stomach upset. And then I can respond in a couple of sentences, if that, just again, that anticipatory guidance and reassurance. Uh, And then oftentimes I am checking in in two to three weeks, depending. Right. And and when you are checking in, I noticed on some of the cases that you shared with me, um, you're frequently using scales like the scared, for example, I think is one of them that you utilize quite regularly. Is that right? Yeah, I really like the scared. So that's the screen for child uh, and adolescent anxiety related disorders that was developed now probably uh, almost 20 years ago at this point. It's actually been incorporated into a number of electronic medical records. I think it's a very nice screen that can be used in a couple of different ways, although maybe I should kind of not call it a screen because it can be a little bit cumbersome to use just as a screening tool. But once I've identified somebody with anxiety and someone who's meeting syndromic criteria there, um, just looking at that total score on the scared can actually be very, very helpful. Uh, And it's one of the things that's been evaluated in some of the prospective trials that we have, both with medication and with psychotherapy, and seems to be sensitive to treatment-related change. Yeah, I I think that's really good advice. And I think many of us are familiar with that tool. I would agree sometimes the scoring is a little tricky, if the more that our electronic records can do that, the better as far as I'm concerned. And I think one of the other tools that we would probably use in our adolescence is something like the PHQ-9 just to monitor depressive symptoms. And that seems, again, I think we're all pretty familiar with that one. Certainly. And, and, you know, the other issue with anxiety is that, you know, there's oftentimes a lot of overlap uh, in terms of the anxiety symptoms as well as the depressive symptoms. Uh, And I think that's where really fleshing out where those symptoms are can be really helpful. So we're talking about medication. And of course, one of the things we always worry about, we want it to be effective, but there's also side effects. And there are several, I, I think most medications, it seems like stomach ache is always one of the top ones and maybe effects on sleep. What are, what are the ones that we should be most not necessarily worried about, but what are the ones we're going to hear about that patients want some relief from? Right. So I think probably there are three that I would talk about. And in terms of the side effects with the SSRIs, we can probably look at them as short-term and longer-term or later to emerge uh, side effects. In terms of the short-term, oftentimes we'll see some restlessness uh, or what we oftentimes call activation. Uh, that happens in these patients. We'll also tend to see uh, in some of these patients a little bit of stomach upset. And it's it's not necessarily stomach ache. It's not necessarily nausea. It's one of those things that unfortunately has been difficult to consistently capture in terms of our nomenclature when we look at the clinical trials. The thing that I think is oftentimes helpful, um, especially if I have an older adolescent um, or a sophisticated parent as well, is I'll talk about why we see that some of the side effects. Uh, and with the SSRIs, again, it, it, this is, you know, like having 
low blood pressure associated with an antihypertensive, right? So I will talk about the fact that this medicine is working on a chemical in the brain that's called serotonin. And the serotonin also helps in terms of our stomachs because it helps control the speed that the stomach squeezes things through or that the intestines squeeze things through. Um, again, getting at the role of serotonergic modulation of intestinal motility. Uh, not that I would use those terms, um, but essentially saying that you know, when the medicine starts to increase serotonin in the brain, it's also doing the same thing in our stomachs. And so what happens is sometimes we'll feel a rumbling feeling in our stomachs. And again, that is really the medicine doing what it's supposed to be doing. So what about, I think one of the things we often worry about, and I don't know how common it is. I, I think I can actually say I've seen it dramatically at least once, but kind of the hypomania, bipolar yeah. disorder. I think that's something we all are taught to worry about. Right. And, and it's certainly something that, that is there in the, in the package insert. So I think, you know, one of the issues is really separating out activation from mania. Uh, and mania looks a lot different. This is not difficulty with sleep. This is not sleeping or going from sleeping eight or nine hours a day to sleeping two or three. This is not mild distractibility. This is really difficulty sitting in the room. We're talking about hypersexuality, grandiosity. These are really, it's a much more extreme phenotype. In terms of the things that would suggest that, again, uh, in a prepubertal child, that's going to be incredibly, incredibly rare. Uh, and also in terms of, not that this is a, a consistent or always reliable risk factor, but uh, having or not having a family history of bipolar disorder is, is also helpful. Yeah, the kid that I'm thinking about, um, he was on, I think it was um, Zoloft, and he just went ballistic. I mean, it, it was so incredibly different. And I really hadn't experienced that before, yeah, yeah. but it was dramatic. I mean, he was like swearing at the principal and he was yeah. up all night and he was running through the, I mean, he was a teenager, literally right. running through the halls and it was like, whoa. <laughs> right. Very, very dramatic. And I, yeah. I think, you know, in many cases that that has been what it looks like you know, having done this as a psychiatrist in the child and adolescent population for uh, about a decade now and prescribing a lot of SSRIs, I've, I've had that happen twice. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I think that, that that's reassuring. Yeah. I think that's good to know because, you know, I, I, again, it's one of those, you know, worst case scenarios, I guess the other worst case scenario that we worry about is, what I had referred to as the FDA black box. Now you mm -hmm. said, well, it's really the FDA box, but, you know, yeah. suicidal ideation and that these medications, and I think parents know about it, Absolutely. That, these, that these medications are going to make their children suicidal. What about that? Right. So um, always something to, to talk about in terms of the, what the FDA calls a boxed warning. So in terms of that boxed warning, the actual data um, suggests that there's a 2% incidence of suicidal thinking and behavior uh, with the medication versus 1% with placebo. Now, what was originally considered suicidal thinking and behavior did include a lot of things. So this included oppositional behavior. This also included tantrums. 
my suspicion is that some of this may have actually been driven by activation uh, in some of these patients. Another thing that I think is always important to emphasize is that no suicides happened in any of these you know, trials that we have, but it is something that we, that we monitor. Now, when we look at the uh, incidence of treatment emergent suicidality or suicidal thinking and behavior, we know a couple of things. We know that it's actually more common in patients with depression compared to those with OCD or anxiety disorders. And I think, again, not that this mitigates the risk medical legally, but when we look at the studies that are out there, those that have measured suicidality prospectively have actually consistently found no effect or improvement over time. The other thing that I think is really important here is that some of those early studies didn't necessarily systematically capture suicidal thinking and behaviors. I alluded to in terms of classifying, you know, tantrums or, you know, headbanging in the context of a tantrum as suicidal thinking and behavior. And then the last point that I would emphasize is that the more recent meta-analyses, other than that one by Hammond in 2004 that gave rise to the black box warning, have really failed to demonstrate that relationship. Um, those are some of our uh, meta-analyses as well as those of other groups. I think that's helpful. At what point does the box come off or is it forever there? I don't know that boxed warnings go away. Uh, well, and I do feel like, I mean, I always tell patients, I need to share this with you. You may know about it. You may not, but I need to share that. If you're seeing this, that I need to tell you about this. My experience is it, it doesn't happen that often, but if this happens, you know, we need to consider it. And, and I think some of it also refers to, you know, I'll share a, a personal story in terms of one of the clinical trials, we use these forms to classify self-injurious as well as suicidal behavior and thinking instrument called the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. And I, I had noted uh, in the physical exam that I did on this patient that he, uh, he was a fingernail biter. Uh, and so he had you know, the, you know, both the leukonychia as well as the kind of perinicheal lesions that we often see with that. He would also kind of scratch on his legs and, and pick at scabs. And I, I commented on that in the physical examination and really didn't think much of it. It certainly improved over the course of the study, but at the end, uh, in a routine audit, one of the things that was noted was that I, I had failed to report uh, self-injurious behavior. And uh, this ultimately then represented several instances of self-injurious behavior. Uh, and this is a young man who improved fairly dramatically and was randomized to uh, the active medication. So that is now captured as treatment-related self-injurious or potentially treatment-related self-injurious behavior. Again, I, you know, I am sometimes a nail-biter myself, and I wouldn't consider that self-injurious behavior. Right, right. Well, I think those are important points. And, uh, you know, oftentimes things that happen, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but during research trials, like anything that gets reported, gets reported. And so if there's an injury that totally doesn't have anything to do with the medication, it still has to be reported. So that, that gets, so it may not necessarily be causality, but it is reported, kind of within yes. the time frame. 
So I was going to ask you about a couple other side effects that I think are common, insomnia and sleepiness. And do you have some ideas on management of those? So we see both. And in terms of the SSRIs, I tend to start them in the morning. In situations where I do run into tiredness, I'll tend to move it to evening time. Now, in terms of this is where knowing a little bit about the pharmacology and the pharmacokinetics just at a basic level can be helpful. Um, So in a situation where I run into uh, tiredness, for example, with sertraline, sertraline is going to take about six to eight hours to be absorbed. So ideally what I'm wanting is that maximum concentration to be at a time when the patient's falling asleep. Um, So in that situation, when I run into tiredness, what I'll typically do is actually shift it to dinner time. In the case of escitalopram or fluoxetine, they're actually going to be much more quickly absorbed, probably over three to four hours. And so in those situations, doing it, you know, an hour or so before bedtime is is certainly very, very reasonable. And what about, you know, sort of management strategies, like, for example, GI side effects? Does it make a difference like to take with food or without food? I noted in one of your pieces of information about you know, PPIs, sometimes those proton pump inhibitors that get used, does that change it? I mean, is that a good thing, bad thing? Yeah, so the PPIs uh, certainly have an interaction uh, with sertraline as well as with escitalopram. That's mostly in terms of the uh, cytochrome P452C19. In terms of probably not really clinically relevant most of the time, but in terms of taking with food or without food, I tend to have folks take it with food uh, because that's oftentimes what was done in the clinical trials. Um, But again, this is a situation where just going back to our second years of medical school and thinking about the pharmacokinetics, we can actually leverage this. Um, So in a situation where I have a, a side effect that's related to a peak level, I can have the patient take it with food and I now have essentially uh, change the curve, if you will, uh, in the conventional sense of the term. So I flattened the curve. So I still have the same absorption over the course of the day, but I no longer have as high of a peak level. So in terms of that max, what you're kind of seeing and where you can kind of play with that a little bit, you would say sertraline or Zoloft is the longest. And you mentioned four to 10 or six to eight hours. And then with fluoxetine or Zola or Prozac, that's a little bit shorter. Shorter shorter by a couple hours. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the escitalopram or Lexapro is shorter yet. Correct. Correct. The the sertraline is really going to be the the slowest to be absorbed of the SSRIs. That's helpful information. And one of the podcasts that will actually follow this one is Dr. Lisa Namaro is going to talk about some of the pharmacokinetic information and gene site and, you know, the genomic testing that's being done. And so we'll talk a little bit more about those uh, genetic things that may make impact. One of the other things, at least in the past, maybe not so much now, but benzodiazepines have been used for anxiety. And I think that probably effective, but there's concerns about using them. Do you see Um, where that sometimes is helpful if you have a kid with like really severe anxiety and it's going to take some time and you're really looking for, you know, functional improvement quickly. Is there a place for that or is that something a pediatrician should stay away from? 
probably not something for the, the primary care space. I certainly use them and have used them, although oftentimes it's it's more in a refractory setting or in, in a very specific situation. Um, when we look at the trials, the pediatric trials for chronic anxiety, as opposed to anxiety that's procedurally related or you know, essentially acute management of anxiety. Um, when we look at the trials that are for say generalized anxiety disorder, the, the benzodiazepines have really not shown a lot of benefit. And one of the reasons we think uh, that may underlie that certainly was the dosing uh, in those studies. But also when we think about the benzodiazepine site uh, in terms of kind of the, the distribution of benzodiazepine binding in the brain, we really don't hit adult levels until, and this varies based on males and females, but until we get to about 16 to 17 years of age. So again, when I'm using it, it's, it's generally not in a younger child or certainly not in a prepubertal child. You know, even in my practice, which is largely focused on anxiety disorders, it tends to be something that I use in, in older uh, adolescents, young adults, and only in very, very, very rare circumstances, actually three that I can think of, would I use it as monotherapy. I guess I can think of times when I've used it. And in the past, I've used it before, and I think I've totally changed that. And honestly, one of the reasons I changed that practice was because of the child psychiatry access programs. Mm -hmm. So where I was able to consult with a psychiatrist and they had better suggestions. And so just to kind of a shout out, and I've talked about this multiple times and had many guests, is that those child psychiatry access programs really help us in this area because mm -hmm. it's complicated and can change how you practice medicine. When you Absolutely. know better, you do better. So I guess one of the things I was wondering about kids that might have severe needle phobia or difficulties going to the dentist, sort of that one time or two time dose that has sometimes been effective when it's really severe and it impairs the ability to get care. And then the other would be, what about like severe panic, you know, when that's happening frequently and it's going to take a while for your SSRI, do you think there's a place for that for, you know, short-term temporary? There certainly are trials in adults that suggest benefit there. This is where, for me, um, working with them a little bit more frequently in the office can actually be helpful. So one of the things that oftentimes is so frightening about a panic attack is just the the perceived lack of ability to control things or to anticipate when the panic attack is, is happening, all the uncertainty that is kind of embroiled in the panic process. And so one of the things that I'll do is actually to try to manage those aspects of things. So in other words, you know, and I'll talk with the patients about this, I'm, I'm hoping that they can have a couple panic attacks before they come back to see me because I'm giving specific homework. Here's what I want you to do when you start to have a panic attack. I need you to write down everything. I need you to write down whether you first started having shortness of breath or whether you first started having sweating or whether you first noticed that your heart was racing or you had flushing, kind of what was the order? What were the times? When did things happen? And so in doing that, I'm actually doing two things. Number one is I'm increasing their ability to kind of understand the panic process, but also I'm adding a, a pretty heavy cognitive demand on 
that panic attack or whatever other process is going on where I'm really asking him to engage and to monitor that process. The third piece, you know, which may be more relevant in terms of some psychological models is that I, I've now leveraged the panic attack. Uh, it now has a function in terms of treatment. You know, in, when I'm doing exposure work, one of the things that I, I used to really do uh, with some younger adults is say, I need you to go to the grocery store and I, I've got to have you have a panic attack. And it was always surprising how many times the, the patient would come in and they'd say, you know, that's just trying. I went to Kroger and I spent an hour there and I couldn't have a panic attack. Um, so, so again, kind of really translating it. So it now has a function in terms of part of your treatment. So I, I think that's clever and a great way to think about um, how brief intervention could be helpful and, you know, strategies, whether it's, I, I think it sounds like first is awareness of what it is so that, you mm -hmm. know, gosh, my heart rate's starting to go up and I feel like I can't get a deep breath that, oh, it's coming. And then maybe some things that could help, whether it's learning breathing strategies or distraction strategies like the five senses, you know, name five things you can see, four things you can hear, that that strategy. I, I've sometimes demonstrated that and had the patient do it with me in the office. And then I, but I love your idea about leveraging it because that, first of all, it makes it not scary. Like it's okay to have a panic attack and it's going to help us guide how, if you're getting better. That, that's very clever strategy. One of the other things I was going to ask you about anxiety and other medications, this would be one that we don't prescribe, but patients are doing, is CBD and THC. So, I mean, I think I hear a lot of kids say, I use that because it helps me relax and it's the only thing that works. Are they wrong? I mean, are those true effects of the medication? And is it going to affect if they're being treated with an SSRI, for example? Yeah, so really pretty complex topic in terms of the cannabinoids. So certainly I'm in a state where we now have uh, medical marijuana, as you know, certainly there's been uh, increased access nationwide. I really worry about cannabinoids, at least those that contain THC in terms of, I think we have quite a bit of data suggesting adverse neurocognitive outcomes in terms of just really some not just statistically significant, but clinically significant IQ loss, particularly when they're used by individuals under the age of 25. You know, and one of the other issues is that, you know, I often see, you know, patients who are using, you know, say marijuana or something with THC in it, you know, as something to facilitate the avoidance, which really is uh, counterproductive in terms of thinking about what we need the patient to do, which is exposure in terms of, you know, getting them into school, you know, being at the point where they can raise their hand in English class or ask their teacher a question. And then I also see that confounded by the difficulties with motivation. Now, CBD is a little bit uh, different in that there are some studies that suggest maybe not worsening uh, in terms of anxiety and some probably poorly controlled studies that may suggest short-term, but not long-term benefits. So actually short-term improvement, long-term worsening. The other issue is that CBD as well as THC will interact uh, with uh, cytochrome P450s, including 3A4 and 2C19. Um, and so what uh, we and others have shown is that 
when you're treating a patient with escitalopram or sertraline, you'll actually pretty significantly increase the concentrations of those medicines when you are using CBD or THC. Uh, and so in those situations, what we would probably be doing is not only putting the patient at risk of more side effects, but also potentially interfering with the site of action uh, of the medication. There's some evidence that there's an interaction between the uh, CB1 receptor and uh, some monoamine machinery there as well. So I'm, I'm wondering, I'm thinking about a patient, if we said something about the THC could actually get in the way of you being able to face what your fear is. Do you think that they would argue, well, isn't the medication that you prescribe doing that? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've, that I've noticed in terms of, you know, working with adolescents who are using a lot of cannabinoids versus those say who have been using or abusing alcohol is that there's a awareness or insight that I more frequently see in, in my alcohol users after they're able to stop that I just don't see as commonly in folks who are using THC or uh, cannabinoids. I don't know that, that that argument is probably one that I would make. I'd probably focus more on just the interactions and the side effects. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, it's pretty common here in Michigan um, where I am, you know, we have recreational marijuana now. And, you know, I think so many of our kids, it, it just, you know, it's like, well, it's safe to use. They often will say, well, it's just like alcohol. And I know I'm not supposed to drink alcohol, but, and also we have a lot of parents that are using. And so it sort of makes it seem like, oh, it's safe and it's okay. It's natural. I think that's right. the other There's argument. kind of a legitimizing. Yeah. 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 So it, it's difficult. And I think, you know, this whole point of, we don't know what it's doing to these young brains. And there's concern now that, you know, it may have some real effects like IQ. Sometimes that's a hard argument to make with a 14 year old. Right, right, um, right. Every once in a while, I had a really insightful teenager that said to me, Dr. Gugino, what do you think about marijuana use? Do you think, it, what do you think about it for me? And I was like, wow. I mean, he was using and I just said, well, do you want to hear my advice? And he said, yeah. And, I, and he's like, okay, well, thank you very much. I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah, so, well, well, oh, go ahead. No, thank you so much for the opportunity to to come and talk to the pediatric practitioners. This has really been a lot of fun. Well, let me ask you just a, in parting: do you any final advice or pearl that you'd like to offer? So, I think really you you started with the most important one, which is you know how do we screen and you know, as we talked about early on, I like the idea of these screening tests that really set up the false positives. So, you know, where we can, you know, very quickly, you know, assess, you know, anxiety and, and then go down the road of assessing functional impairment. I guess, you know, for folks who are not big fans of the scared or the GAD7 or those things, I'd probably just give one parting piece of advice. Don't ask, do you worry? Ask, how much do you worry? Or in terms of a younger child, how good are you at worrying? Again, thinking about the fact that that sets us up for that false positive, which is really what we want. And then we can say, so tell me about when you worry and very quickly go down that road of, is there functional impairment? What's the frequency? What's the severity? Uh, even in the absence sometimes of the um, more structured screening instruments. 
that's a that's a great pearl. Not do you worry, but how much do you worry or how good are you at worrying? I'm really good at worrying. Right, right. <laughs> I get and, I'm an overachiever. I get A plus. <laughs> right. And so for some of those kids, you know, I'm pretty good at worrying. Well, what do you worry about? I worry about algebra because I'm not so good at it. Uh, and you know, I'm not doing well in that class. Well, what do you think it happened if you didn't pass this next test? Well, you know, I'd probably have to mom would make me do tutoring and things like that. That's pretty developmentally appropriate. It's proportional and it's expected as opposed to, well, if I don't do well in terms of algebra, that's going to influence what classes I can get into in high school and whether or not I'll be able to remain on the AP track, which will affect what college I'll get into, which will then affect my employability. And that's important from an insurance standpoint because my family has a lot of medical issues and I <laughs> and worry about whether and I'm they're 13. At risk of that, right? <laughs> so again, kind of both kids having anxiety about algebra, but really over the course of a, what do you think would happen if we're able to disentangle that proportional and expected anxiety from more catastrophic futuristic thinking. Now, that's a great way to frame that. Well, my last question is, if you could go back and talk to your younger self as a resident, what advice would you give yourself? So get into child psychiatry earlier, uh, <laughs> even though you're frustrated by the research uh, stuff, keep at it. Uh, it's really important. Those are probably the most important things. Uh, and also spend spend as much time as you can with your family. Ah, there you go. <laughs> well, you've had your wish come true with COVID, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So yeah, well, thank well, you again. This has really been a lot of fun. Oh, well, hey, thank you. Helpful. Thank you so much. Super helpful. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day and appreciate you. You as well. Take care. Okay, so that was a lot of information, and I have a big list of takeaways for you, so grab a pencil. So number one, for kids with anxiety, the question we must answer is not do you worry, but how often do you worry, and what do you worry about, and does it get in the way of school, friends, and home? Number two, for mild anxiety, CBT is a good start. For moderate anxiety, the evidence is equal for medication or CBT. If symptoms are more severe, there is good evidence to support using medications along with CBT at the very beginning. Number three, Dr. Strawn describes severe symptoms. They include the frequency of worrying. For example, he suggested five to seven days per week, more than an hour a day, and impairment. And that's the really key word. And he dives into describing the worry in detail. For example, if you go to a restaurant, are you able to order for yourself? Can you even go to the restaurant? And describing the worry and the, the intensity really helps not only with understanding the severity, but also looking for targets for improvement. Number four, using the SCARED can help assess severity and is a nice tool to follow response to treatment. Number five, SSRIs are safe for first-line medication treatment for anxiety and depression in children. Dr. Strawn shared three of his suggestions for starting. They include fluoxetine or Prozac, sertraline or Zoloft, and escitalopram or Lexapro. Number six, start low and go slow, except for sometimes know that it's okay to increase doses more quickly if you're needing to relieve fairly severe symptoms while attending to side effects. 
Number seven, the time to onset of action varies with sertraline being the longest, followed by fluoxetine and then escitalopram. This is important when you're managing side effects. Number eight, side effects that are most important include GI symptoms, and he described the rumbling stomach, but it can also be nausea. And this is due to the serotonin effects on GI motility, fatigue and insomnia, and activation or feelings of restlessness are also common. And again, those can be managed by either changing the dose or affecting the time of action and, you know, giving them at a different time of day. Number nine, more on side effects. As I mentioned, these can be managed by changing the time of day. He generally recommends giving them in the morning, but if there's too much fatigue, you can move them to dinner time, for example, with sertraline, or an hour or so before bed if you're using the shorter-acting escitalopram. You can then decrease the dose or dose up more slowly. You can use the ramp dosage function in many electronic records for titration, and this makes electronic prescribing a little bit easier. Number 10. Monitoring can use both portal messaging, televisits, and in-person visits. Phrasing to a patient might include, let me know how it's going, even if it's going better, and not setting them up for the, let me know if there are problems. So I think that's usually what we do is contact me if you're having problems, but we really want to know, are they having any success? Number 11, Dr. Strawn did not recommend benzodiazepines be used for panic and described a more strategic reframe of panic attacks that may actually leverage their occurrence. For example, he really asks patients to pay attention to when the panic occurs, what it's like, and actually perhaps inducing a panic attack by facing whatever it is that they're afraid of. And then they can look for improvements. I thought that was a really clever reframe. If you're considering a benzodiazepine, it might be worth a discussion to your friendly child and adolescent psychiatrist. And again, as I've mentioned on many, many podcasts, you can use the Child Psychiatry Access Program in your state, and I'll attach a link so that you can find out if there's one nearby. Number 12, regarding CBD and THC. I think we can clearly tell kids that there are adverse effects to young brains, and that includes decreases in IQ. There are concerns, too, that CBD may interact with some medications. For example, Lexapro and sertraline, Uh, they may increase their concentrations. And because if you do that, you may see some increase in side effects. Number 13, about the FDA boxed warning. The incidence of suicidal ideation in studies is about 2% in kids on medications versus 1% in kids not on medication. Many meta-analyses have failed to link SSRIs and suicidality as a significant risk, and no suicides occurred in any of the studies conducted. The box will likely stay, and you'll have to address this with families, but we can share that there is more recent data that lessens the concerns. I know that this is a hard conversation, but we have to discuss with families because they may know about this. Number 14, final pearls. Screen with a plan. You have to be prepared for those positives and know that many of the positives may be false. Not do you worry, but instead, how much do you worry or how good are you at worrying? I thought that was, again, a nice reframe. And then finally, dig into the details of worry. 
So as a really great worrier, this was super helpful to me. And I know this is something that we all see in practice. So I hope it was helpful. And I will attach some show notes that may give you some other pointers on references. Thanks again for joining me. And I hope that you get something out of this podcast today. Remember, I'm always interested in feedback and other topics that you might be liking to hear about. We have some other things coming up that I think will be really interesting to you. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.